Hey everyone, welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Dan, and uh, got a little special treat for you guys today, uh, my buddy and friend and brother. Uh, Robert had a chance to speak a few times this week, and uh, I had the chance to record that. And uh, Robert's had a bit of a bumpy road, but uh, by all appearances, he looks like he's on the right track today and uh getting asked to speak and uh is definitely a symptom of uh that being on the right track um 12 step spiritual recovery is a group of men and women who are delivering the 12 steps to anyone who would like to harness those tools no longer limited to uh, alcoholics and addicts and gamblers and overeaters uh you do not have to uh qualify for 12-step spiritual recovery otherwise known as tssr uh, you can go to 12stepspiritualrecovery.com for the meeting schedule you can join that meeting a few of those meetings from anywhere in the world it is on zoom and uh there is a face-to-face meeting in uh, louisville kentucky as well on sundays and the website homepage will give you all that information. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery by James Christopher Cohn is a book that can be found on Amazon. It is the uh, great compendium of the 12 steps, in my opinion. Uh, I've watched it. It's a recipe I use, and uh, I've had a great deal of personal experience. It's what brought me from the depths, and uh, I'm just sold on it, and the details of it are in that book. That can be found on Amazon, 12-Step Spiritual Recovery by James Christopher Cohn. So we will go on and get you to uh, have a few minutes here with Robert.
So I was born in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, two parents and two younger siblings. Oldest out of three kids. Uh, mom and dad, they did, you know, the mom and dad thing. And for the most part, I had everything I needed and most of what I wanted. My childhood was pretty good. I uh, was in organized sports, you know, I had a lot of attention at the house. And, you know, life was pretty good from what I can remember of being such a young age. Um, you know, I was uh, the oldest out of three, and of course when my younger sisters came, you know, a lot of that attention that I used to get sort of started to diminish a little bit. And that's when I found out that I could be a manipulator. So I've been manipulated from a very young age, so whenever that attention was diverted from me, what I would do is I would act out, do things to sort of get that focus back on me because I'm conceited and I'm selfish and I don't want all the attention. I mean, I'm an alcoholic, of course, so that's, that's perfectly fitting for that. Um, you know, school was fine. You know, I, I got along pretty well as a young one, but, you know, I really don't remember too much of it. You know, that, that was elementary school, and I was just going through life and doing what I needed to do. Um, when I was about nine years old, um, you know, I started to, you know, get a little bit older and realize a few things. And being young, you don't know what you don't know. Looking back at it now, parents were actually some really, really well-functioning alcoholics and addicts. And, um, you know, that was something that I never realized until I got a little bit older. Now, I was always wondering why I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, you know what I mean? To get them out here so we can party a little bit. Um, when I was nine years old, my mom and dad, they got a divorce. And my mom split the scene, and I didn't know what happened to her after that for quite a number of years. Uh, so right there was my first resentment. You know, Mom, why'd you leave? Why am I not good enough for you to love me? And that made me feel inadequate as a kid. I didn't feel like I was worth anything because of that. Um, not too long after that, my grandmother passed away. She was one of the rocks in the family. And another resentment right there. You know, now I started to have a resentment towards my higher power. You know, you know, God, why, why, why'd you take the two most important women in my life? Why was I not good enough for them to want to stay here and be here for me? But being a kid, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, so at that point, my dad took on three kids by himself. Um, him being a functioning alcoholic, being a very prideful, egotistical man, he did what he could the best way he knew how to do it. But he had suffered a lot of uh, trauma in that short amount of time. He lost his mom, he lost his wife for 13 years, and now he was stuck facing what he needs to do in life with three kids by himself. Um, I couldn't imagine what was going through his mind at that time because I've never been in that situation, but I can imagine it was quite a lot. Um, like I said, my dad was very prideful, didn't expect no help from nobody, tried to do everything on his own. Um, you know, so times were tough a lot of times, you know what I mean? He worked his ass off, we didn't get no kind of government assistance, you know. We had what we needed and that was it. And there was nothing extra about that. You know, clothes come from goodwill, food on the table, lights were on. That's what we got. Um, so that gets me into middle school, and you know I'm I'm in middle school. I'm in hand-me-down clothes. I'm, I'm very socially awkward because I don't feel comfortable with who I am, and that leads to me. I get bullied a lot when I was in school. Um, I didn't really have a sense of purpose or any friends or anybody to sort of lead me and, and be there for me. So I always felt like I was an outcast. I always felt like I was not good enough. That was the number one thing with my life. I felt like I just was not good enough. Um, so 
My dad's doing his thing. He's trying to raise us three kids. And I, I've noticed a lot now that my dad was a really angry person during this time, too. You know, he had a lot going on. I understand that. Um, so, you know, the way that he reacted to certain things towards us kids wasn't always the best reactions. You know, sometimes there's a good ass whooping, and sometimes there was a, a lot of abandonment because, you know, during his time of getting high, he liked to disappear a little bit and then be me and my two sisters and just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And, that, and during those times when he would just slip off and do his thing, it still made me feel, what am I doing wrong to where all the people that I love in my life were sort of drifting away from me and don't want nothing to do with me? Um, so from a very young age, I've, I've had that feeling of just not good enough. I've had that feeling of what, what can I do? Um, and then of course, you know, all the other character defects that, you know, come with it as you learn these behaviors from people that you obviously look up to. Uh, so I get in middle school and my main goal at this time is to try to fit in. I didn't care about my grades. I was just trying to be a people pleaser because I wanted to feel part of something. Um, and that led me to getting off the school bus one day and a couple of uh, older guys in the neighborhood thought it would be a good idea to see a young kid get high and there, there it went. There was my first ever use and we drank a beer and smoked a joint and for some reason at that moment I felt like life was going to be okay. Here's these older guys that I was around. They're laughing, they're joking, they're talking to me, they're welcoming me into their home. I'm sitting there, I'm laughing, I'm feeling great. And I felt part of for the first time in a very long time. And what do I do? Because I'm an alcoholic, I like to chase the same feeling, the things that make me feel good. So that became a very regular occurrence on the back end of my life. That's what I had to do to make myself feel a part of. I had to feel a part of and I did whatever it took. I people please because at the end of the day, if I people please, that would make me think they like me. You know what I mean? What can I do for you to like me? It wasn't ever because, you know, they really did like me. Because if they did, you know, we wouldn't have gotten to some of the situations we did. But here we are. Um, so I was 14 years old. Life was getting hard at, you know, school. I didn't give a shit about school. I was too busy, worried about getting high. Um, then uh, come home one day, my dad caught me high. And, you know, there really wasn't no consequence off the back end of that. If I got a bad report card, get you a good old ass whooping. No consequences for the getting high, so that told me off the bat, I pretty much get away with this. I can do this on a regular basis, and nothing's going to come of it. So my, my whole childhood was just doing that. I didn't care about nothing else but that because it made me feel good. It made me feel whole. It made me feel like I was somebody. Uh, so, you know, life wasn't the greatest at the house. I was tired of, uh, tired of all the mismanagement of how he tried to handle his feelings. Um, how he took out a lot of his anger on me and uh, I was on my way home one day from school with a bad report card I knew that that report card was going to give me an ass whooping and I decided at that point I wasn't going to go home um, I had done, got me a little girlfriend in high school you know I was in ninth grade done, got me a little girlfriend and I said I'm not going home I'm going to get off the bus with you she's like well cool my parents live right next door I stayed with my grandma and I was like why she stay with her grandma well, a couple of hours later, I found out because her parents were 100% in the madness. Full-blown flight from reality. So, full-blown flight from reality. So, 
Um, of course, them being full-blown addicts, not having no kind of care in the world, they obliged to let me stay with them for a few days to sort of figure out what I was going to do. Um, so that whole time, I'm not in school. My dad's probably wondering where in the hell is he at. I don't have no care about what anybody thinks in that situation because I'm selfish and I'm scared. Um, so a couple days go by, I'm still drinking, I'm smoking, and I have the opportunity to snack, snatch up something just a little bit harder than what I'm accustomed to doing. Uh, so her parents had left to go somewhere. I found, uh, found a crack pipe laying around, and I decided to go ahead and give that thing a good old rip, and that's what I did. And for some reason, I felt like, I felt like Superman. And I had the best ideas in the world at that time too. So, so I had an aunt. I had an aunt that lived in Tacoma, Georgia, and my best thought process was, I don't want to stay near my dad. I know I've got an aunt in Tacoma. Now, mind you, Tacoma, Georgia is about 138 miles away from Greenville. I'm, I'm 14 years old. I got a backpack with a couple T-shirts and some sweatpants. I'm high on crack. And my, 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 my best thing is, I'm gonna run away to Tacoma, Georgia. So I start hoofing it, nine o'clock at night on a Wednesday night, and here I am, heading down the highway to Tacoma, Georgia, 133 miles away. Um, on my way there, uh, I get into a little city called Greer, and I had some guys that went, went to school with, older guys that I've known just in passing, and uh, I actually ran into them on my way there, and of course, you know, they weren't weren't the best of influences. They was the ones that fucked off in school quite a bit. Uh, the cool guys that I wanted to be like when I was that age. So I get I get uh, rounded up with them. We're hanging out, we're smoking, we're drinking, and they get to talking about a little gas station up the street and um, how easy that gas station would be to rob. And of course, me being young, 14, high on crack, and uh, you know, just continuing to feed my disease, I ended up succumbing to a little bit of peer pressure on the back end of that. So uh, they tell me how to do this. They give me a fully laid out plan. You know, I would have thought that was Bill Wilson with the way they was presenting this motherfucker to me. So they say, this is what you're gonna do. So they give me this steak knife. And they give me this toboggan hat and they say, just pull the toboggan hat over your face and hold the lady up. And I was like, all right. So I go up to the gas station. I get in the store, mask up. Hey, everybody, you can see me. Uh, I, I get scared. <laughs> I steal a couple candy bars, run out the door, and go back over to the porch where everybody was hanging out. <laughs> got some Twix for you guys. That's what we got. Boy, that, was, that was intense. Um, so... You know, they sit there, they start clowning me, and that made me not feel a part of. And my biggest thing in life is I've never felt a part of, and I wanted these guys to accept me. So, a little bit of drink, more drinking later, a little bit more drug usage later, and they say, you know, I'm back up there in that store. I walk in, mask still off. And I walk in, and I'm looking around, there's nobody in the store. So I walk to the aisle, and I squat down, and I'm thinking to myself, oh God, am I going to do this? Am I going to do My heart's beating through my chest. I'm half drunk, I'm high as hell. I pull the mask over my face, I run, I jump the counter, and I hold up this convenience store. 14 years old. Um, got away with some cigarettes, a little bit of cash, Little did I know there was a uh, manager in the back counting money, seen everything happen on camera. As I'm running out the door, the only thing I hear is a gunshot. 
Next thing you know, glass busts in the cooler that was beside me. And I'm thinking now, looking back, God moment there, somebody stepped in and sort of diverted that that from turning really fucking bad. Um, so out the door I run and run down the street. Um, of course, you know, I'm 14. Uh, I think I look cool. My baggy-ass pants catch me on the fence, and I eat shit. Uh, that old man caught up with me really fast. Uh, so as I'm laying there, and that old man's holding me hostage until the police get there, you know, I've just got a million things running through my head. And uh, I'm just pretty much like I'm fucked. And that, that was pretty much what happened. I was fucked. Uh, so, rear police got there, picked me up. They took me to their police station. They could put me in a cell. It was all adults there. Uh, best place they had for me was a dark little broom closet for about four and a half, five hours. So, I sat in there until Greenville County came pick me up and took me into uh, the Greenville County juvenile side of things. Um, so, I'm sitting there and they finally get a hold of my dad. My dad comes down. Uh, they're wanting uh, a certain amount for bond. I think it was like 10, 15,000 bond. And I sat tight because dad could not afford it. Like I said, we had the things that we absolutely needed and that was it. So when I was 14, I wasn't able to get bonded out by my dad. And I sat there for quite a bit until I had some court dates. And when I got into juvenile, I was absolutely terrified. This is an experience that I've never experienced before. I'm scared. I'm scared already as it is. I don't feel accepted, and now I'm somewhere where I'm absolutely, totally alone, and I do not know what to do. So I sit in there, and I go through the court process, probably five, six months, and finally they end up uh, classifying me, sending me down to a place called the Department of Juvenile uh, Justice in Columbia, South Carolina. And, you know, I'm, I'm a career criminal, and I can tell you it's just like walking onto the yard at Green River, Eastern, whatever have you. Juvenile sucks. Those fuckers are wild. Um, we all got something to prove when we're 14, 15, 16 years old. Who's the baddest out of the group? And that's all it was, was a constant fight. Um, so, like I mentioned before, I am a manipulator, a really good one at that. Um, so, when I get into this Department of Juvenile Justice, they put me through a psychiatric evaluation. I'm sitting there, they're asking me the questions, do you feel like harming yourself or others, this, that, and then they got to a question and they said, do you suffer from auditory hallucinations? Yes, I do. I didn't even know what auditory hallucinations were. And he, I said, yes, I do. He said, so you hear voices? And I was like, yes, I do. I hear voices. Never heard a voice in my life. Um, but at this point, I, I was just see where this took me. What is going to happen in this situation? Let's find out. So I tell them I hear these uh, voices, and I get I get in here, and I start doing my time. I'm bunked up with a guy. You know, it's uh, school during the day. And about a week later, they said, we're going to send you to see a psychiatrist. So they have a psychiatrist on campus. I go in there, and I talk to him. I get these questions asked. You know, what, what What happens when this happens? I tell them, you know, it just happens in the night sometimes. Uh, what do the voices tell you? Tell me to do stuff I shouldn't be doing. They told me to rob that store. Um, so at this point, I've already cultivated this elaborate lie of shit that doesn't even really happen whatsoever. And my only thought is, let's play it out. Um, so after that first psychiatrist appointment, I go back to my cell that night. Um, guards do a walkthrough to check on things, I get up and start walking around and fucking talking to myself. 
That guard looks at me, makes a couple of notes. Next day, psychiatrist goes and pulls me. I heard you had an episode last night. I was like, yes, I did. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am playing the part because I'm also a chameleon. You know, that's one of the things I do. I try to make myself into somebody that you will like, somebody that can take advantage of you because the only thing in this world that's important is me and my self-preservation and what the hell I can get out of you. Um, so, at that point, they decided to go ahead and start doping me up with Seroquel. Uh, and I realized that the first time I ever did Seroquel, it gave me a feeling that took me out of being where I had to be in my own headspace. So, for a majority of the next few months, going back and forth seeing that psychiatrist, I stayed laid back in a chair, drool out of my mouth, and uh, it was pretty nice. Because I didn't have to face the reality of the situation I had done got myself into. So, um, after a couple of months of that, I got called back to the psychiatrist. They told me that they were not able to facilitate the needs that I have for my mental uh, disorder. And they subclassed me. And I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, we're going to send you to a nice little group home in Greenville, South Carolina. I said, damn, that's about 15 minutes from my house. So I went from the old foam mattress on the steel bunk, and I went to a full-size bed with a Walmart comforter. And I was like, fuck yes. That worked. That worked. Four months of this elaborate scheme of hearing voices, walking around talking to myself, people thinking I'm crazy as shit, paid off. I got myself out of a bad situation into a slightly less bad situation. Um, to tell you the dynamic from that, the second week that I was at a group home, we went on a group outing to Six Flags. Fucking one. That was a win for me. Um, so, yeah, so during, during that time, that few months while I was in the, the Department of Juvenile Justice, I got my GED. Um, so when I got to this group home, I didn't have to go to school. I was able to get a job in the kitchen. Uh, then I did a little bit of work for the maintenance. And the whole time I was in there, I was manipulating them. I needed some someone to smoke cigarettes. I manipulated them for the cigarettes. I was manipulating everybody in there, taking advantage of every opportunity I could to better my situation while I was in there. Um, so ended up getting released from this group home and uh, released on the probation and back to my dad's uh, care. You know, I was 17, a month away from turning 18, and that's where I ended up going. My dad said, look, we're going to make sure you get the probation. He said, you're going to get a job because you don't have to go to school no more. And he said, you're going to get your shit together. Uh, when, uh, when a couple hours later, I was up the street, back at them old friend's house, doing the same shit that I've always done. Because I want to make myself feel good because I'm selfish and self-centered to the fucking core. Uh, so, a couple days later, I missed my probation appointment, and there I go. I'm already out. Three days, absconded, and I've got a warrant out for my arrest for violation of probation. Um, about a week later, I'm out riding with those same friends, doing a lot of unsavory things, and we get pulled over. My name gets ran, and right back to Greenville County I go. Uh, so I get into Greenville County, I sit there for a couple weeks, and my name comes over at Intercom. They tell me to pack my shit. I get down to the lobby, it's my probation officer. 
And uh, I wish I would have heeded this ominous warning when I seen her because she told me, Robert, if you do not change your shit, you're going to end up in prison or you are going to die. She said, you've been a pain in my ass for the past four and a half years. She said, I'm sick of you. You've been nothing but a headache. Where do you need to go? So during that time, my mom had disappeared, took off and did her little thing. But being in the group home, I was allowed to go out on pass, go to family's house. And I sort of started a relationship with my mom again. And uh, so I got dropped off at my mom's house. Um, so, of course, you know, my mom has all this guilt from just disappearing and of course I use that against her as well because I'm a manipulator and had her give me a place to stay for a little bit. Um, so I just went on through life doing that man. I worked, uh, just kept using, you know, kept kept feeding myself, kept feeding my ego, kept feeding my pride, kept feeding all the things that do not need to be fed on a regular basis because those things turn me into a monster. Um, End up moving from Greenville, South Carolina to Winchester, Kentucky. Uh, got up here and nothing changes and nothing changes. I thought a geographical cure was probably gonna slow me down, settle me up a little bit. Far from the truth. So I get up here to Winchester, Kentucky. I get a job, meet a girl, get the house, have a kid, get married. I'm doing the life thing, but what I don't realize is I've got this uh, disease and I've got this peculiar mental twist that likes to hang out back here until the right fucking moment comes along for it to jump out and grab me. When that grabs me and I take that first drink or that first drug, I got a phenomenon of craving that's going to grab a hold of me and send me on the ride of my life. And the only way I'm going to stop is if I end up in jail or I run out. That's the only two things that stop me once I get going. Um, so, you know, through a lot of my own self-will and a lot of bullshit, I end up uh, coming down to Louisville one day to pick up a little something. Got stopped on the way back uh, to Winchester. And when I went back uh, to Winchester, I ended up catching me a nice uh, fat trafficking charge, uh, receiving stolen property, a whole list of just really good shit. Um, and that set me down for about the next five years. I ended up getting 11 years ranking current on the back end of all that stuff and uh, did my time. And I got out in June of 2020 and got released to Dismas Charities up there. And I decided that at that time, it was probably time to do something different. Instead of going back home, call it divine intervention, call it what you will, something told me do not go back. So I didn't go back. So I stayed here in uh, Louisville and that's when I got over to Sober Solutions. Um, when I got to Sober Solutions, I had half my feet in, half my feet out. I didn't have all my ch chips pushed to the center. Um, but I was willing at that point to maybe do something a little bit different. Uh, so I get in there and I do the six months. I was high half the time. Um, you know, I got the chips while I was high. I, I did all the shit because I was getting my ego fed. I get a chip, I get a clap, I get a hug, I get a way to go. Stuff I never had growing up. Um, my one year comes up, I got that chip while I was high because I got the claps, I got somebody to talk real good about me. Here I am, look at me. I'm putting on this facade because like I said, I want you to like me. I've never felt a part of. And drugs and alcohol was what took and made that mask for me. It made me feel good. So, um, for the next, for the past three years, it's been in and out, in and out. I've had, you know, I was half in, worked what steps I wanted to work. Um, 
I like to make amends on my third step. That was really fun. Um, don't suggest doing that. Um, and I never really wanted to take an inventory of myself and sort of see what was going on. So it took it took uh, it took my last relapse to really get me to be absolutely willing. I had finally hit my rock bottom. If I would have had a way to kill myself that Sunday morning on August 13th, I would have done it. The shower bar wouldn't fucking hold my weight because I'm a pretty big boy, and I didn't have a gun because I'm a felon. And you know, I was just in incomprehensible demoralization. I I absolutely hated who I had become. At that point, I decided that I would have a little bit of willingness. At this time, I've done built an awesome support group, and I did the only thing I knew to do was go home, face the music with Lindsay, and I called my boy John right here, man. And, and um, I got a couple of suggestions. I got a phone number, and I made the phone call. And that landed me at the Talbot House. Um, when I got into the Talbot House, I still had a few reservations. But I knew that if I didn't do something different, that I was going to die or I was going to end up in prison. Um, and I didn't want to do that no more. So what it finally took was a lot of open-mindedness, willingness, and the one that really scared me was rigorous fucking honesty. Open-mindedness and willingness, that was pretty easy. I've always been open-minded to try new drugs. I've always been willing to fucking take advantage of you. That's always been easy for me to do. I just was always applying them to the wrong thing. So then I got decided I was going to get rigorously honest, and I decided that I was going to put a lot of fucking action into saving my life. Um, and what it took was me seeing a lot of guys that had something that I really wanted because I was really fucking miserable. Um, so that, that's what led me to these right here. This right here is a program of action. One, I admitted I was powerless. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and lives become unmanageable. I like to break this word of manageable down because un means not. And as a man, I was not able to manage my fucking life, ever. I could not manage my life. Every time I tried to manage my life, I ended up high in Louisville Manor three or four days. Uh, yeah, I got a horse card there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I ended up in jails and institutions every time. That's where my, that's where my unmanageability leads me. So I decided that I was going to come to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. And I've seen it work in so many other people's lives. I've seen it work in my sponsor's lives. I've seen it work in my friends' lives. And I knew there was something that has guided me and has some kind of divine intervention throughout my life to, to save me from what could have been a lot of terrible situations. Case in point, almost being shot when I was 14 running out of a gas station. Um, overdoses that I've come back from because of divine intervention. That goes to show me there's something out there that's been guiding me. Maybe it's time I give it up to him and let's see what happens because my way fucking sucks. Um, and I made that decision. I made my decision to turn our will and our lives over to care of God as we understood him. All these three are right here is making the decision. And I finally decided to make that decision. Um, four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That was a real good chance for me to really take a look at myself and who I was, and I was scared to do that. But I did it because the outcome of me not doing it was not one I wanted to experience anymore whatsoever. Um, we were entirely uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I decided, you know, let that shit go, man, because I was carrying a lot of secrets. I was carrying a lot of shame. I was carrying a lot of guilt. 
and I want it to be free. So I let absolutely everything go. Now, during these past three years, I've done some fifth steps, kept a lot of secrets, and kept getting fucking high. That's the result of not doing a thorough fourth and fifth step. Six and seven, Tyler ready to remove all these defects of character, remove our shortcomings. Um, that's a daily thing. It's not going to happen overnight. I'm a pretty fucked up person. It's going to take a lot of... Uh, it's going to take a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, giving it up that I'm powerless for these things to happen. Eight and nine, um, list of persons we had harmed, came willing to make men's home, and then direct amends. That's me being able to practice forgiveness and then being able to write the things that I've made wrong. It feels really good to be able to look another man in his eyes today. That's one of the main things in this program that has given me is a sense of self and doing this work that I'm able to be able to admit when I'm wrong and own up to that shit. And then 10, 11, and 12, that's maintenance. That's on a daily basis. I do not miss 10, 11, and 12. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory. We were wrong, promptly admitted it. I do that throughout the day. I know when I'm wrong. I don't always know what the right thing is, but I always know what the wrong thing is. There's not a doubt in my mind. If I know, I know what's wrong. I don't always know what's right, but I know what's wrong, and I'm able to check myself and take care of those things today. Um, so through prayer and meditation, I have to pray and meditate. I have to give it up to my higher power every morning and every night, and I've got to realize that without him, I would not be able to stay in this program and do the things that I've been able to achieve since I've been sober. And 12, i got to give this shit away, man. I, can't, I cannot do this and have all these people give me all this love, care, support, and what they have freely given me, the time and the effort, how selfish would I be to keep that? So I have to give this away. You know what I mean? That's part of the program. We do this to help another alcoholic. So the only thing I have to say is if you're new and you're having reservations, life Life sucked when I was in your position. Life sucked when I was sitting back there a month sober. Life sucked when I was out there getting high. What what am I willing to do different? And at one point in my life, I became willing to do everything different. Um, so that's what I did. I did everything different. It's not a hard program. They give you a list of shit to do. It's hard to get yourself to do it. You've got to be absolutely willing, and you've got to be ready to do this. Um, my life is so much better today. I'm a good employee. I'm a good partner. My kids love me. I'm there for my kids. I've got friends. I was invited to Friendsmas this year. That was fucking awesome. I missed the last few of those. Um, I'm involved. I stay involved. I stay locked in because I know that if I continue to do this, my life is going to dramatically get better in every aspect in every way. So if you're new, Hang in there. Don't leave until the miracle happens because I promise you the miracle will happen. That uh, that spiritual awakening, that's a bad motherfucker. That's better than any high I've ever had. And I'm going to continue riding that and I'm going to continue doing what I can do to help the next person. God's made me a vessel for him to work through me and help somebody else and that's my purpose in life. Help somebody else. I'm Robert
always try to be just who they want.